Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. What is the, uh, you know, I'm trying to think here. Let's talk about the, the point you brought up about high absorbers and we, we were learning more about leaky gut and you know you referenced irritable bowel syndrome which probably has a leaky gut component underlying it do you feel that that probably many of those people tend to be high absorbers of oxalate as well oh yeah definitely that that's very well established in the literature and they the bariatric surgeons also are quite aware that half of their half of their um patients who get this surgery are going to end up with some form of kidney problem and they don't even warn people. It should be part of the consent form. Hey, do you know that if you have bariatric surgery, you're never going to have spinach again? They don't even teach them that they need to be oxalate aware. The unwillingness to be aware of oxalate is really the biggest concern, but you can definitely see that certain groups like the mid, the middle East where they drink a lot of tea, the, the reason Golding bird knew about oxalates is because he had tea every day and, and potatoes and he must've liked some high oxalate. He must've liked rhubarb or something like that. Whereas in France and Germany, they weren't completely in agreement about this oxalic acid diathesis because they don't eat that way. So they don't see it as much as he was seeing it. So that's, it creates the basis for a, a scientific argument. Is it real? Is it not real? Well, it depends on the people and their environmental exposure and so on. So a lot of, a lot of, we see a lot of uh, interactions between different food types. Um, are there foods or compounds in foods that mitigate oxalates? You know, I know you talk about calcium, possibly co-ingestion of two foods at the same time. Let's say somebody says, I, I'm, I'm not going to ever give up my spinach once a week or whatever. I still like eating my peanut butter. How does, how does that person mitigate the damage or is it possible with, with something else dietary or, or some other method? Well, there are some options there that might help if your portions are reasonable. I don't think a smoothie is a reasonable idea because it's usually three times as much as you would normally eat it if it was a salad or if it, well, maybe if it was cooked, because if cooked, of course, you're taking a big fluffy bag and it melts down to this much and it's super concentrated. Um, but in small, modest portions of high oxalate foods, some amount of dairy foods that are high in calcium may help chelate the mobile oxalate and make it less able to be absorbed. Now, we know that the small crystals of calcium oxalate can still be absorbed. So it's also the fiber and other things that kind of hang on to it and maybe, you know, a healthy mucus level and other things. So there's um, some benefit and some protection from calcium. And that's the other tragedy is that when you're replacing dairy milk with almond milk, you're losing the protective food and you're, you're adding the toxic food without any protection. 
So that could help. There is a company who makes an enzyme that you could spend, you know, a dollar a day putting an enzyme in water and having that with your meals or maybe three. And I'm not sure what the price is, but it would be a whole lifestyle effort to protect yourself from that where the enzyme might break down. They haven't seen the studies that proves that it works, but it, it might help some. If you really want to live like that, we have to take a little packet and dissolve it before every bite. You know, I, personally, I think it's complicated inexpensive and it's easier just to learn to eat differently honestly it's simpler so i just i know we've, we've covered a couple things but i'd like to just see uh what is the role of oxalate exposure in things like cardiovascular disease neurodegenerative disease mental health disorders uh and any other other things that we might not associate that with i mean obviously when elliot was on where every as a physician I knew about you know calcium oxalate stones and kidney kidneys disease, and that's about the extent of my knowledge of oxalates. You know, before I got into this, you know, nutritional stuff. But I mean, for the average person on the street, what things besides the things we've already talked about with the skin and 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 a little bit of the GI stuff would you say are potentially related to oxalates that we may not typically associate that with? Well, because oxalate is affecting all the basic processes of metabolism and tissue maintenance, growth, repair, all that stuff that, you know, there's, it can be affiliated with any disease. I, I really think that calcification of arteries is oxalate. All this, um, in fact, even blaming uric acid for a lot of things, Uric acid may be following oxalate around the body and displacing the oxalate and ending up in places because of the oxalate and getting it's like there was a show um, called Leave It to Beaver back before our day, Sean. We're way too young for that. But the character next door, the boy next door was like Eddie Haskell or something. And he had really great manners. He was, he dressed well, he dressed, he was clean. He knew how to be polite to the adults and everyone thought he was an angel and never suspected him. And he'd get all the other kids involved in something terrible and all the other kids would get in trouble. And he would get off scot-free because he's Mr. Polite, you know? And that's oxalate. That's what it's doing this background stuff in the body and yet Medicine and research has not put the effort in. And, and the reason is because it's so hard to study a sneaky, tricky mess like oxalate that you're not going to build a great career doing this. There's so many more interesting fads to follow up on and better ways to get funding. And it just got dropped. The whole As oxalate was coming up as a thing, was around the same time when we started deciding that everything about your health would be determined by a plasma test. So we started to get very objective in medicine and very scientific, and we were going to take blood tests back in the 1930s. And so that just moved things like oxalate. We're also really big into penicillin and getting into the antibiotic era. And so between blood tests and antibiotics, we had it all figured out. And we dropped this huge coming in of the science. And the only one, the only field of medicine that was left with oxalate was the kidney world. And it got abandoned in the kidney world. So all these extra renal effects haven't been studied at all, but they're happening in every tissue of the body, guarantee. And I, I don't, I don't say things like this. I mean, I I stayed in the field of public health in the background, writing grants and and you know doing this academic work because that's a safe place. You don't have to be right. But telling people what to eat, I've never wanted to be in the business of telling people what to eat and 
you know, saying what's wrong with their food or just being the one who says, oh my gosh, that's so bad for you. You know, that is not me. I'm doing this because I can't believe that someone with an Ivy League degree in nutrition from Cornell University and, uh, you know, advanced work in health and research and a network of doctors, both conventional and alternative and holistic, and nobody could help me. I had providers say to me in tears, Sally, I can't help you anymore. I've spent so many dollars being sick. I'm the healthy kid who's sick all the time. My whole life is a train wreck. And the reason I'm doing this work and being willing to speak up is because it's wrong. It's wrong that someone with my degree of knowledge and awareness would be so ignorant. That how could anyone ever figure this out if someone doesn't say, hey, sister, you could have what I have. You should think about your almonds, you know? And, and it's miraculous. I, I just have to turn around in the locker room or down the street and I find somebody who's really sick and, they, and it's oxalate. My own husband, I gave him carpal tunnel syndrome by feeding him Swiss chard and sweet potatoes and encouraging him to have cashew snacks for his lunch. Before he met me, he didn't eat like that and he was fine for 40 years until I started feeding him. And luckily we undid that just before we were about to have surgery on his wrist. So all that to say is, you know, we don't know enough about this. It is a very real problem. It can get you into some very ugly stuff. Undoing it can take years and you do not want to be promoting foods that are high in oxalate. You don't know who is the 3.5 grams lethal versus the 30 grams lethal. We have no way to know. No one seems to care. You would think toxicology would say, well, let's develop a test and find out who will die at 30 grams and who dies at three grams and you know, separate the chaff and, and warn everybody that, A, if you're on the low end or you're having surgery, if you're IBS, you have kidney stones, you ought to know about oxalate. Unfortunately, a lot of the people I've met in the process of doing this, no one mentions the word oxalate. So you can have 13 kidney stones of which all of them were oxalate and no one even said the word to you. You could have interstitial cystitis. You could have fecal incontinence. You could have all kinds of problems and no one says oxalate. Why don't you learn about that? And that's why I'm doing this work because it's a disaster. Yeah, no doubt you're going to, you're going to, people are going to hear this and there's going to be some people that are going to be impacted, hopefully positively for it. A couple of points you brought up. We had a fellow on the show a couple of weeks ago named Morgan Fifter. He's another nutritionist uh, that was talking quite a bit about uric acid and kind of the same sort of thing. As you mentioned, you know, uric acid is actually an antioxidant. And one of the reasons uric acid is running around is maybe cleaning up the messes that maybe oxalate and other compounds are causing. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting. Now, you talked about glutathione as being a, uh, another antioxidant that our body produces, you know, to, to help deal with things like, among other things, but, but oxalates. And, and we see that, at least I've seen literature that shows that people on uh, ketogenic cell diets, their glutathione levels are elevated. Uh, do you find that certain dietary patterns in conjunction with high oxalates are worse. So what it would be eating a high carb junk food diet plus oxalates is worse for you than eating maybe a low carb uh, diet plus oxalates. Yeah, that, that's a question that no one has asked or studied. And in my own N of one experiment on my own self, I, I couldn't say that that was the case. 
I think any kind of deficiency or weakness makes you vulnerable to oxalate. So if your diet is making you deficient in minerals, you're going to get certain kinds of problems. Like I got all these muscle knots all through my neck and back to the point where I had like 50 of them. And I finally realized like three years ago, that was the low potassium, which was probably secondary to all this inflammation that the oxalate's been causing me since I was 12. And uh, so it's really whatever it is that's making you weak, sick, and tired, oxalate's just gonna take advantage of that. So any cell that can't generate its own glutathione to protect itself from the oxalate nearby is gonna die. And you're gonna end up with fibrosis and you know scar tissue in areas or areas that just don't recover. It's really interesting, after a couple of years on the low oxalate diet or on the carnivore diet, you may see people's old scars from 30 years ago start fading away and you can hardly see them anymore. That's got, this, these things happen just on the low oxalate diet. You don't have to go on the current. You can see just what oxalates in itself. And the oxalate is a huge amount of changes because you're changing many different plant foods. You're dropping many different plant foods and hopefully picking up more animal foods in your diet to fill, fill in the gaps. But um, we don't know. There's so many factors going on, but you certainly should speculate that if you've been raised on Skittles and garbage and you think you're going to throw spinach on top of that, it's not going to help. I really think this is one of the big problems is we, in our culture, you eat your broccoli to earn your cake, right? Eat your broccoli so you can have dessert is the classic parental thing. So, so what we do, like people with alcoholism and diabetes, like they're cheating all the time. They can't quite get their behavior in order. They know they're food and, and alcohol addicted and they can't, they can't, they don't have the neurological health to really take control of that. They don't have the nutrients in place to be in control of their own behavior. And so they'll gorge on spinach to correct their bad behavior. So maybe they got too drunk last night. So today they'll go buy a clamshell of spinach and chew on that all day as a kind of penance or a way to make up for that. And that's just like adding a toxin to a very weak person. It's, uh, as a public health mommy type person, I'm really worried about that. The whole culture of, you know, add some healthy food and you'll fix your, or you'll earn your garbage food. Yeah, you know, I think, I think this somewhat highlights uh, an, an interesting kind of scenario where, as I guess humans, especially first world humans, it's like this whole concept within nutrition of, oh, you need every color under the rainbow or everything in moderation. And it's like, you know, it just doesn't really make sense because everything is a relatively new phenomenon when it comes to food in terms of the availability of it. And you look to any other you know, mammal around the world and you're seeing them eat like a very small select grouping of things, not like this, this massive endless list of things they can have and then ultimately will have at some point in time. Whereas sometimes I look at some of these approaches, whether it be like a low oxalate diet, a carnivore diet, a ketogenic diet, you know, you're, you're essentially eliminating huge chunks of potential. You're, you're starting to look at other, at some things that you used to see as food as not food any longer. Right. And sometimes it can just, whether it be an accident or otherwise, you start to eliminate things that are causing problems just from having that open door to almost everything for such a long time. Well, you know, I hate to get on my whining soapbox again, but the idea of moderation and variety and rainbow 
that's just CYA for we don't know what we're talking about. So just in case we know nothing, just eat anything and everything and call it moderation and it'll be okay. I mean, it's a big smoke screen. It is no substance in it. And it's really quite dangerous because it gives people permission to have pop tarts and blue cupcakes and a big spinach smoothie and then that whole combination is stupid. Excuse me. You can tell I'm a little emotional about this. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I have said that a balanced diet just means you don't know, you don't have a clue, basically. Right. That is, you know, and, and um, you know, I just put a post on that on Twitter or something like that. It said the more complicated your diet is, the more implausible that it would, would have ever been for your species. I mean, you know, you, you can't find another species that needs a, a balanced diet of, you know, 75 colored foods to to make their diet work. It just doesn't make sense at all. And I don't think it works for humans. Let me ask you one of the things, because keto diets are very popular these days. And in many cases, a ketogenic diet can be a very high oxalate diet. Can you discuss just for that? Because for, a lot of people who listen to our show are on ketogenic diets. And can you, can you talk to them about some of the pitfalls? I know you mentioned almond flour is one of the big ones, but what, what other keto foods are also oxalate bombs? Mm, yeah, well, the fat bomb is almost always got cacao or chocolate or, or cocoa. So they're, they're all over the, the almonds and the cocoa, right? Because then you can have your dessert and have your dessert and have your dessert. So those are the big ones and any of the nuts. So we're turning nuts into a substitute for everything now. And, you know, you can buy nut cheese, nut this, that. So basically it's pretty simple with keto because keto you've already gotten rid of the potatoes and the sweet potatoes and those are sleeper foods because they may not be the highest in oxalate but they're the very commonly and routinely eaten and they're sort of addictive so there's this if you get into spinach dark chocolate or anything that uses a chocolate ingredient that's either cocoa or you know the little unsweetened little chocolate bits whatever they call those um, and then the greens, which are, it's not green food though, people. It's not about its color. There's a lot of low oxalate greens that you can have. You can have all the lettuces, arugula, watercress, romaine, endive, I think. Um, I, I don't mess with this stuff anymore, so I forget what they are. <laughs> uh, but in the bear, the blueberries, I mean, obviously on keto, you're only going to have the half cup of Berries, but switch from your raspberries and blackberries. Blackberries are the worst and use blueberries instead. So if you're keto and you're into your raspberry smoothie with your almond butter in it and your this and then that, just back off slowly from the almond butter, the almond flour, the nuts, the chocolate stuff, um, spices, turmeric, whole, whole root turmeric is really high in oxalate and pretty useless. I mean, this, it's a lot of fanfare. Turmeric is saving the day. No matter what's wrong with you, you need more turmeric. And you can buy whole root turmeric in like these quart or two quart mega containers at Costco. It's so purchase. It's so common now that they can actually make it worth the shelf space on Costco because it'll move. That's how much people are doing that. Now, if you want that flavor, use turmeric extract, or even if you believe that it has some medicinal qualities, those supplements are going to be low in oxalate because you've extracted the oxalate in the process of refining it. So you can move to uh, um, essential oil, like black pepper is real high in oxalate. So you can either switch to white pepper, which is a simple way to do it, or use black pepper oil 
to get that flavor and not have the oxalate. Either way, there's a way around it. You can get to some of the flavors you want uh, and some of the textures you want if you just know a few little tricks. Uh, that's, uh, can you point out some of the, I mean, pro probably directing people to your own material, but I mean, what, what resources do people have to find out about oxalate and low oxalate foods and low oxalate recipes and for somebody that's, you know, and, and Zach can link this at the end of the show, but uh, how do we, how do we, how do we go out finding out more information? Because we, we could have you sit here and read every low oxalate food on the planet and that would not be very exciting listening, but no. tell people where to look that up. Yeah. Okay. So be warned that a lot of the oxalate lists online are very incomplete, very short and full of inaccuracies, including the USDA data that is published in nutritional books that dietitians use. It's full of garbage data. So the, the original numbers weren't good. And then there's this sort of telephone game, whereas people make lists, mistakes get added. It's handling oxalate data is weirdly hard to do and do well. So even some big names in kidney research who are at fancy institutions and their dietitians have short and accurate lists. Um, so the um, best data has been collected through a woman named Joanne Yacht who founded the VP Foundation, VP standing for vulva pain. So this is where the modern rediscovery of oxalates affecting tissues outside the kidney came with Joanne. She suffered tremendous, um, horrific things because of crotch pain and vagina area pain in the vulva area. She had horrible surgeries where they took the glands out from around her vagina away, and then they lasered her labia multiple times and did all these things. And she, luckily through her network, she found a, a researcher named Clive Solomons who figured out by testing every urine void that she had a high oxalate peaks. And he ended up, moving on to something called the pain project and tested 4,000 women's urine every void for multiple days and was had this breakthrough discovery that even though you can't see it in a 24-hour urine collection these women had two or one spikes of hyper high oxalates during the day and we can't explain why but each woman's spike would happen at the same time of day for her so each person was on some kind of circadian pattern that was unique to them of this hyperoxaluria. So we owe a great debt of gratitude for decent data coming from Joanne because her 25 year plus mission has been to get foods tested. And we believe that the testing done by Michael Liebman at Wyoming was, is pretty well done. And that her collection of the data is pretty well done. And the group that's made her data more available is a Susan Owens group, the Trying Low Oxalate Listserv, who has a Facebook group and a Yahoo group. They put that data and data, they've also had foods tested in the same lab and put it in a spreadsheet. And so they have a spreadsheet that they provide for free. I have uh, tried to go beyond that and fix a lot of mistakes that I've found in both sets of data. Um, and put just a little bit on my website. I'm going to have more available. And when I get my book done, there'll be data there too. But right now, this is the biggest problem. Medicine and nutrition have never cared about oxalate in food because they never really cared about, uh, clearly, I mean, they, they don't even know how to advise in the kidney world a low oxalate diet because no one actually got a good list. It's disgraceful. Um, so go, if you really want the big spreadsheet, you can go um, to the moderators on the um, 
trying low oxalate listserv. That came about because a bunch of autistic kids needed some more answers. And, and Susan Owens was uh, in part of the Dan group and the autism group. And somehow they worked their way around to testing the urine of these kids and doing the same thing that Clive Solomon said. They decided to do what Clive did with the vulva pain women with these autistic kids. And they found the same thing with these autistic kids. And uh, the, the parents of these kids said, well, why don't we do the low oxalate diet? And they were the ones who said, we should try this. And then Susan's like, well, okay, I don't, you know, she didn't see the point in it. But the, the kids all had like these rashes and these things happening. And Susan was able to crowdsource the insight of this dumping process of this release, this excretion process and seeing it over and over again, thousands of times. And of course, the same families had the autistic kids the whole family went low oxalate. So they were seeing this in the parents and the siblings and so on where this oxalate accumulation, oxalate toxicity was going on. Autistic behaviors and other health problems get, go into remission or, or get a lot better. But you go through this period of this recovery where we don't really have any you know, re funded research where you can do a more objective job of collecting data and start analyzing who is who and sorting out what we all need to recover from this. So that's the place to go is that's all there is really in modern life for oxalates is Joanne with her little nonprofit helping people with crotch and pelvic problems and they she they what Clive and Joanne figured out Clive Solomon he's now dead but he figured out that there was this complex of connective tissue problems and he called it a connective tissue disorder and then the autistic group discovered through basically crowdsourcing that there's this release process that happens after you change the diet and then you know i came along as a public health and nutrition person just outraged that my field was ignoring this and then i myself basically have a train wreck of a personal history because i didn't know about this so yeah, getting the data out is a big problem. But I've got materials on my website as well. I have a beginner's guide on my website that you can um, either buy for 250 or you can get for free if you sign up on my listserv and wanna be informed of when I come up with posts and so on. This episode of Human Performance Outliers is brought to you by fellow carnivore and Legal Shield associate Doug Lee. Through Legal Shield's smartphone app, Doug is helping to level the playing field by bringing affordable legal services to everyone right on their phones. For just $24.95 a month, families have instant access to a local team of lawyers working on your behalf, providing legal advice, traffic violation assistance, will preparation, IRS audit assistance, family and domestic services, and contract and document review, just to name a few. Doug also offers ID Shield the most comprehensive identity protection and recovery service in all of North America. Members get access to a licensed private investigator to help resolve any identity theft issues that arise. Last year alone, there were more than 780 reported data breaches compromising the identities of nearly 170 million people. Responding quickly to ID theft is the best way to prevent serious complications and protect your good name. Doug offers business plans and gun owners plans as well. So head over to douglee.info, that's D-O-U-G-L-E-E.info to get the app and learn more about how Legal Shield has been protecting families for over 40 years.
So one thing you said at the beginning of the show uh, was talking about the fact that we have people that are consuming too many toxins, and then they're also, you know, toxicity and, and nutrient deficiency are the, are the driving issues between at least the dietary impact on chronic disease. Talk to me a little bit about how oxalates can lead to deficiencies of other nutrients, uh, if that is, because my understanding is that it combined with a number of uh, other other uh, minerals that we may become deficient. Could you kind of go over that a little bit? Right. Well, um, almost any mineral you think of can be affected by oxalate. And with calcium, it's a direct stealing of calcium from the blood. And then the, the bones have to make that up. And so you get this slow draining of calcium from the bones. The bones are your big reservoir of minerals. And so they pay a price for that. Uh, sulfite is, there's this... Um, one of the ways that oxalate gets stuck in the body, I didn't really talk about all of them. I talked about the fact that the body has an intentional process of holding on to it until the coast is clear. The body has a lot of places where the tissues are just tangled, vulnerable and collection starts happening. And then the other place where you get oxalate accumulating is because there's these transporters in cell membranes that move sulfur and, and bicarbonate and iodine and other ions across membranes. And it also moves oxalate across the membrane. And, and Susan Owens is, uh, is under the impression that there's maybe a process of mistaken identity where the cells are pulling in oxalate thinking that they're getting sulfur. And in the process, these sulfur transporters end up also, there's a depletion of sulfur or because you are already depleted in sulfur, the body pulls in the oxalate instead of the sulfur. So it might be that we need to up the sulfur. So we do a lot of mineral therapy with the oxalate folks to try to get their minerals up. Is, mag um, is, magnesium, is magnesium, does magnesium also affected by, by uh, yes, because uh, magnesium is considered to be a pretty common deficiency. We're discovering that and perhaps yeah. oxalate. Yeah, it is. And the public health literature says potassium is even worse one. And it, magnesium, potassium, sulfur, iron. Iron is interesting because the, um, the protein that carries iron through the body, through the blood and delivers it to tissues, has this little, this little Pac-Man molecule that has this mouth. And the Pac-Man mouth holds the iron molecule and carries it around and then releases it in the tissues. The Pac-Man molecule can get displaced by oxalate. And oxalate is now holding on to that iron, but oxalate can't let it go. It's too strong a bond. And so as that delivery protein, or can think of it as like a delivery truck who's supposed to be delivering the iron to the tissues, can't let the iron go. So you get into functional iron problems because the iron's locked up with oxalate. Eventually it's probably discarded in the urine and so on. So you waste iron. And of course, that's probably way less of a problem on eating ribeyes all the time. <laughs> you have plenty of iron. Uh, but all those minerals, the potassium because of the inflammation, the magnesium and calcium because you're automatically creating these complexes of magnesium and calcium, and they're, they're being used as a carrier to get this oxalate out, and you're wasting a lot of those minerals. Um, the sulfur, you know, some of it is unclear, but clearly all this mineral deficiency is a big part of it. And then the body to process, the liver especially, to process other things like vitamin C and oxalate itself uses vitamin B6 and needs a lot of biotin and thiamine. And this over too much 
toxins and oxalate wears that system out and it, it causes deficiencies in those B vitamins and probably also deficiencies in the conjugates that the liver needs to detox other things. You could be low in um, the various conjugates that the liver needs to get rid of any old toxin. And, and, but keep in mind, when we say the liver's detox, it's not detoxing oxalate. The liver doesn't do that. Nothing detoxes oxalate. We only get it out of the body through the tears, the saliva, the skin, primarily the urine, and through the colon. There's transporters on the colon for excreting oxalate. And when your livers or when your kidneys overwhelmed, the colon clicks in these excretors, these, these transports, and moves oxalate into the colon. And we see that as well on the diet, especially if you're taking the calcium oxalate that a lot of us recommend, you'll get the calcium down into the colon. We're taking calcium not to absorb it, but to be a chelator in the colon so that when the body starts excreting oxalate into the colon, that calcium will grab it because the bacteria that should be there probably aren't. And that'll come out as like this fine sandy grit in the stool. And sometimes that's looking kind of yellow tan and sometimes it's black. Often it's a mix of both. But you'll see this gritty stool as part of this excretion process happening. And some people just see crystals coming out their skin. They see these chill bumps or this white stuff or out of their eyes, out of their, cause Zach, you asked me before, how do you know that you're dumping? And we, I didn't get too deep into that, but. Everyone has a different pattern, but I'm seeing an awful lot of eyes, skin, uh, the nail beds. One woman she had, and I mentioned this in that talk that Sean saw, she had uh, 10 years before she had severe frostbite in all 10 of her fingers. And after she got on the diet, she went through over six months of the skin peeling and crystals coming out of her nail beds. And she had to wear gloves all the time just to function. So the, the body's ready to push it out where it can. Um, and that process of pushing out oxalate is probably consuming some of this calcium and, and uh, magnesium and so on. But So just to follow up with that, Sally, does there, have you seen any benefits then for folks just trying to increase their sweat rate or going to a sauna or something like that just yeah. to kind of purge quicker? And I'm just trying to leverage my Phoenix weather coming up this summer. I can get rid of all the oxalates in July. <laughs> I highly recommend sauna. It's a great gentle way to improve your system's ability to release stuff. The, the skin is the biggest organ and the experts who, who deal in people who are toxic use sauna as their key therapy. They'll put these people say post 9-11 victims who are full of who knows what into hot sauna for three hours a day. It's three hours of sauna, cold shower, a break, three hours, you know, one hour at a time, three, one hour, it's a huge amount of sauna. Now that most of us can't handle that heavy load, I don't know how they handle that, but I highly recommend sauna is a way to get ready to go on a low oxide diet and to continue to do, I had a sauna this morning, I went to the gym, I joined my gym, I don't work out, um, but I joined a gym so I could have a sauna for cheap and, you know, that's all I wanted them for. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, it's so important and it's so gentle and so important. I also do hot yoga at least three days a week. And that's 105 degrees of, uh, you know, stretching and getting into those tissues, stimulating and supporting those tissues and doing those are basically the kind of hermesis you want, you know, a, a little bit of stretching and um, 
weight bearing and heat and cryo is probably a good thing. You know, these are, that is what hormesis is meant to be. People use hormesis as an excuse to ignore things like oxalate. Oh, it's just hormetic. No, it's not. It's just toxic. So I'm getting off your question, but you know. No, it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting just to think of like some of these more or less ancient traditions of like saunas and like ice bath type things being potentially a beneficial thing that for whatever reason people have known about for the longest time and still do it, but maybe they don't know why they're doing it. And I guess this is just another kind of notch in their belt in terms of the uses of some of these sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a very interesting point. And the point I've sort of made as well, I mean, about the hormesis, you know, theory or argument about, uh, you know, we should eat, we should be eating these potentially low dose toxic compounds to, to, to build up our capacity to deal with more of them. And, and the, the point is, you know, that's like you're saying you should be sucking on the back of a tailpipe of a car once a week to, to deal with the pollution in the atmosphere. I just don't buy it as a, as a very compelling argument to me personally. Uh, you know, we know that these, some of these uh, systems get upregulated, but they do anyway with a lot of other things. You don't need to, to feed yourself toxins to do that. Let me ask you about, um, as you are probably acutely aware, like I am, there is a ever increasing push to have humanity adopt a plant-based diet. Uh, we see it in the news constantly. You know, I think it's supported by processed food industries. I think they have the most to gain financially from this. Uh, do you have any thoughts or concerns about that whole dynamic? And, and you know, well, I'll just get your commentary on that. <laughs> you know, when I was in seventh grade, I think it was, or was it eighth? I think it was seventh grade. The same year I decided I wanted to study nutrition in college. We had this class called reading class where it was like the garbage class where we read about how nuclear power was going to save us all. And another thing we read in that class was, how the soybean industry was going to save us all and we were going to be able to have all these fake meats and be able to feed the world and have these substitute foods made of soy and they would be so much better and more affordable and we could feed more it was just total industry propaganda both of those readings are those are the only things i remember about reading class is i knew at the time i was being propagandized like, this is weird that we're reading about nuclear power and soy in seventh grade. So I think there's been a long road. I mean, seventh grade, we're talking 1977, people. <laughs> this, the industries, the commodity agriculture industries and all their, all their friends, the, the food industry, which keeps getting smaller and smaller, the food conglomerates are down to like two or three now. Um, have a tremendous amount of power over what happens and what doesn't and what gets taxed and what doesn't and what's allowed to happen and what isn't. And um, the small farmer has been deliberately squeezed out of this. And it started with the dawn of nutrition science itself when Elmer McCollum isolated vitamin A from butter fat. He um, felt that butter fat and vitamin A were so important that this is why Americans in the West in general were better than everyone else because we ate milk and butter. And this is how we were going to win World War I because it was right in the middle of that. You know, that was just a horrible time in history for everybody in the Western world involved in that war. And so he taught the U.S. government that they should fund nutrition research. And he taught the dairy industry that they should promote dairy. And that's why I learned about 
how much milk to drink in kindergarten because from the dawn of nutrition, it, they went straight to government policy and um, for-profit businesses and how they could manipulate the food market and uh, manipulate the mind of the consumer to get the financial outcome they were looking for in the long run. And this has been a hundred years of this where the whole economic structure has been influenced by these interests. And of course, yes, it's great for us to have good milk from the local dairy, but what the dairy industry did as a result of this, tipping off about how important it was to the national security of our country that we all made sure we drank whole milk, was that now the dairy industry took away the small dairy farmer. Now we had to insist on homogenization and processing of milk and could no longer get milk from a local dairy that was fresh because by insisting on homogenization and pasteurization and standardization, we could now skim off the profit. Like we could control how the profit and distribution of milk worked. And so there's been more and more of moving the control of food production and the purchasing of food to these um, middlemen, instead of us buying from our neighbor, the farmer, we're buying from a conglomerate who bought it from a wholesaler, who bought it from a auction house, and some poor farmer at the bottom is holding all the debt in the system. Yeah, I see that in the cattle industry, you know, particularly as I've, as I've had the fortune to, to talk and, and visit with a number of cattle ranchers, and it's the same sort of, you know, situation where, you know, the guy's doing the work, you know, the 365 days, seven days a week type of thing out there with the animals, you know, they're barely making a living. And then it, it all concentrates to the, to the retailer and the, and the big processors that, that are, that are capturing all the money. And then they seem to influence the policy that favors that situation. And it continues to look like it's going to put more and more of the small, smaller time folks out of business. And, and it's probably to the, you know, disservice to all of us you know, with time. Very much so, because the, the health of a local community depends on having a ring of food production around these urban centers. And we keep losing um, awareness of how important it is to have these beautiful rolling hills of green around the city with the cows dotted on the field and how, what a valuable community resource that is, not only for the, the beauty of the, the countryside that we want to have when we're driving out of town, but to be able to provide food to locals and rejuvenate a, a lost and dying rural uh, culture. I, I worked in the poorest rural county in North Carolina as part of my graduate work at UNC and everybody who could have a job is down in Raleigh instead of out in the rural town. And back in town are, are the old folks and the teenagers. And when the boys come back from their week um, on the construction sites in the urban centers, they're coming back getting this 16 year old girls pregnant. I mean, the, what's left in rural communities is really discouraging. And, and we need to value um, the food production power of our, the green rings left around cities need to start getting protected by direct consumer action. Consumers need to say, we want these things. We wanna be willing to buy straight from farmers so they could make a living at farming. We have to make farming a living worth doing. And I'm a big one on direct purchases. I buy my cow and pig as a half cow and a whole pig straight from a local farmer and have an easy full freezer all the time. And uh, it's, it's something I really got interested in about 15 years ago. 
because at UNC, the oncology department was sending our department, where we were the program on integrative medicine, trying to teach conventional providers about these holistic concepts that were, have now become so popular that the patients have a lot more literacy around, you know, supplements and lifestyle questions and have a lot of questions they want to bring to their providers and even their pharmacists. Those folks aren't being trained to this stuff in school at all. So we were doing that. So the oncology department, because at least 50% of every cancer, um, of a cancer center's patients want more help on their nutrition. They say, hey, I've got cancer. I should eat better. What should I do? And the oncology department's like, I don't know. And they have like a halftime dietitian. You know, it's like, they're not in. So they would send us those kind of folks who would not shut up about, tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. How, what should I eat? And they would send us their patients. And I would be thinking, you know, I can't just send them to the grocery store and get them better. They need good food. They need clean food, but we know how it was raised and nutritious food raised on soils that have minerals in them. So I got real interested in local agriculture and have been participating in a kind of sustainable agriculture movement ever since. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we've had uh, a number of people in that realm. We had, you know, you know, Dr. Alan Savory on a while ago. We got Diana Rogers. We've got uh, Nicolette uh, Han Neiman coming on. You know, we've had a number of people in this sustainable agricultural thing. And one of the things I'm looking to setting up is something called Animal Based Nutrition Network dot com, and we're going to try to bring more of the consumers, you know, guys like me, together with the the, the individual producers, and try to further drive that dynamic. I'm excited about, you know, that coming out because as, as I get more, you know, for whatever reason, for good or bad, as I get more influence and reach, that's one of the things I want to try to do. And, you know, it's nice to have a network of people that, that support that. I think it's, I think it's extremely important. I think, you know, at the bottom line, we all need nutritious food. And I think that's number one. But then beyond that, it's, it's what we can do as individuals to help direct policy. You know, I know there's a lot of the USDA has a lot of policy that, that makes it difficult for, for local farmers to provide their, their, their animals. You know, they, they, have to, they have to deal with the USDA processors, which, you know, it's, it's just a difficult setup. It, yeah, and here in the East, the problem is having enough processors who will process meat. Uh, and it, it's, it's a big problem. I think it would be fantastic if the carnivore world could embrace the uh, animal agriculture world and combine conferences, like be willing to have a conference where they're already having a conference and be part of that. Like we should join hands in both directions, not just ask them to come to our conferences, but to participate in their conferences or find a way to collaborate on that because that's the only way we're going to make enough of this, what you're doing, which is direct action, like move our money resources towards our better health and a better health of a, an economy that supports us, that we can actually get a hold of good meat uh, and animal foods and make that um, solve so many problems at the same time. It just makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I gave a talk uh, last fall to the U.S. Cattlemen's Association telling them they need to eat more meat, you know, and they were kind of surprised, like, what? You know, oh, to so, I, so I did that, and then I've got some relationships, and then, and then actually we had our carnivore conference, and actually the NCBA, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, actually showed up to that. And awesome. so we are, and I'm actually going to be talking with the researchers from NCBA, their nutrition researchers next week 
about maybe getting some studies funded regarding meat-based diets, you know, and so. Oh, good. Well, that. I tell you, um, we should definitely bring Susan Owens into that in, in the low oxalate world because we have some ideas about things we should be looking at in this research. And she and I are both the kinds who like to think about designing research. She has been doing these um, oat analyses. This is uh, organic acid tests of urine of these folks. And that she has developed her own uh, way to adjust for creatinine and other things and make better sense out of what is this metabolic pattern. And we both want to know, how does the metabolic pattern change when you go from a plant-based diet to an omnivorous diet to an all-meat diet? What does that mean metabolically? And then see if we can start generating some theories about what any of it means. You know, how do we interpret? Because your your numbers and your values are going to be quite skewed by the diet. So how much? Where's the pathology and where's not the pathology? Those are questions. Like I think we have no clue. Yeah, I think our our frame of reference is 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 totally different. You know, the, even the U.S. RDA, the RDAs, which I argue are not. They're, they're, they're just not very good. I mean, they're, they're very dependent upon background diet. I mean, obviously it's high grain, high oxalate, high lectin, high fiber, high carbohydrate diet, which may have no relevance to what I, the way I eat, you know, and I think, I think there's just these basic questions we haven't even answered yet with these, mm -hmm. these different dietary patterns, not to mention lab values and thyroid numbers and all, all these things. So I think, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to, sort of figure out what's pathology and what's normal for that particular diet. Yeah, it, we're really just at the beginning of things and you're just doing such a great job of creating the conversation that hasn't had. I mean, those of us in conventional nutrition, I mean, it would never dawn on us to eat just meat. Until I met Amber O'Hearn in 2017, I was like, that's a thing? <laughs> it's like, we're not, we're not free enough mentally to, to think even that's are out of the box. Even people like me who are ancestral health people and are quite aware of the Inuit and the various cultures who do well on all meat, it wouldn't occur to me, well, that's something you could do, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. So you're rattling some cages and moving so many things forward. I'm really grateful that you're doing that. And I think oxalate awareness has to be part of this carnivore thing. The next conference, we need a whole workshop half a day to bring up people's awareness of this so that they don't carry on some of this mythology or just inattention to oxalate that is actually causing harm. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think this is going to continue to grow. And, uh, you know, it, it is whether you, you think a carnivorous diet is appropriate for some people, any people, all people, and, I, and I'm, I'm still open-minded about that. I don't know the answer, but I do know that there are people thriving on it, and we should, we should be curious as to why that is. And we should also, and it's just making people, it's asking questions that haven't been asked before, and I think there's some value in that, you know, in, in learning the answers to these things, and hopefully there'll be more people curious. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much kind of like a sledgehammer. I'm not trying to do this like a scalpel and do it for, you know, I just get out there and ruffle feathers and piss people off and turn apple carts over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> see what shakes out and it's kind of fun. You know, sometimes I get a lot of grief about it, but at the same time, like I said, we're having people that are, that are learning, I think a lot. And, and I'm learning too. That's a fun thing. Well, you know, I'm learning too. I think just anticipating our discussion Really, I mean, I'm much more clear about this metabolic PTSD that's going on, that 
post oxalate and post everything else, the long-term recovery from oxalate isn't necessarily a pretty picture. So even after you go through your 10 years of cleaning out your oxalate, and now we can actually test you, Sean, or better case, Amber, and I've told Amber this, I said, we need to test the person who hasn't been eating oxalate for 10 years to find out what a low oxalate life is metabolically. What is the endogenous production of oxalate? We can't know that on somebody who just went low oxalate for the study because they're still full of oxalate and researchers have never looked at that. So, but it's clear to me that what's left in the wake once you've cleaned out all these oxalate, there is still metabolic changes. You have still messed up your microbiome, you've still messed up your epigenome, you've messed up your liver, you've messed up your glands, because uh, one of the points when we were talking about sulfur and the mistaken identity that causes some cells to take on oxalate where they wouldn't otherwise, is glands. Glands are, I teach my people, I say glands are the factories of the diet, they're of the body. They're producing hormones and sebum and all sweat, they produce a lot of stuff, right? So they have, as, as metabolic systems go, as a cell or a group of cells, they have a huge shipping and receiving department. They have to ship out a lot of product all the time. That's what they do. They ship out product. They ship out sebum and sweat constantly. So they have a huge receiving department. So they're sweepers. They sweep in all kinds of stuff floating around the interstitium and in the bloodstream nearby. They're sweeping in more and more oxalate. So we see oxalate get really hung up in glands of all kinds. And so you get... You see hypogonadism, that is low function of the testes and ovaries. You see the hypothyroidism. You see stuffed eyes. We get eye styes as often a reaction to the low oxalate diet because now the oxalate starts coming out of these glands and they get stuck in the old bacteria that are back there. You know, you get these little infections and so on. So you see, so I'm, I mentioned this because um, the glandular function, all this stuff, may be permanently damaged. How well your bones recover, they probably recover pretty well maybe, but it takes probably a long time. It takes a long time to get your tendons better. Your connective tissue starts getting better pretty quickly. Your nervous system gets better really quickly. I think the, the body prioritizes the nervous system because you need to be able to be awake and alert enough to run away from danger. And that if, you, if you're discoordinated and stupid or depressed or asleep, or just dull because your nervous system is toxic. So there are certain things that get better, but I really think there can be long-term traces of being even bad at handling no carb maybe, or take a while. Might take People might be pretty bumpy the first two or three years of trying to be no or low carb because their background um, metabolic function is in this sort of PTSD mode. We don't know what that washout is like, but it, it might create a long-term, um, you know, kind of not such a, not all the vitality. We, we may not all be winning national and, and international, um, you know, championships like you guys are, but I can tell you that the people with this problem feel like they are champions because they are fighting their, their, their life is so difficult. The, the amount of suffering they're going through and the amount of fighting they've had to do to keep their house running and their job running and their bills paid under the, under the weight of being sick with oxalate is tremendous. And they deserve some kind of blue ribbon as well as you guys who happen to not wreck your lives with oxalate. <laughs>
Well, you know, it is really interesting to me when we have the, like the lifestyle guests come on who were essentially at death's door at one point in some shape or form and just their attitude towards like what food they're putting in their mouth is so much different than someone who either has just kind of really like low level problems that they're not recognizing where for them it's like, well, you know, I really don't really wouldn't want to give that up or I really don't really want to do that. And then you have this person who could barely get out of bed the next day and it's just such a no brainer to them. They're like, well, yeah, well, why wouldn't I do that? That my life is way better this way. And um, to go back to what you were saying before about Amber O'Hearn too, and just like what a valuable potential resource we have in a person like that who has done all that back work. She already did the 10 years of no plants, all animal products. And to not take advantage of that would be, would be a shame because like, you know, it, it's there, it's, and, and she's willing, you know, so like, um, yeah, like, and that's, that just almost highlights, I think, one of the biggest problems we have with any of the nutritional studies out there is, you know, you get these quote unquote high level studies done that they spent three weeks doing a, a trial of some sort. And then, you know, that's the, that's what we're working off of when there was a whole life of other things happening before that. And then when we do branch out into these multi-year decade studies, they're all just like food frequency questionnaires, which, you know, unless you have someone like Amber and Hearn who probably could tell you what she's been eating for the last 10 years, because it's just such a, you know, finely defined grouping of food that, uh, you know, it's, you really can't glean a whole lot from that. No. And of course, food frequency questionnaires is a great, another, you know, tack in your foot. <laughs> just look at the category on all the food frequency questionnaires about what greens you eat. All greens are green. So even though lettuce and cabbage have almost no oxalate and spinach and Swiss chard are toxic with oxalate, it's all considered the same vegetable. So the, the, what is that? It doesn't tell you anything. Hey, Sally, I, you know, we've, we've, I think we're going to have to break this up into two parts, Zach, so we just want to get across the two-hour threshold. You'll be our second two-hour guest. <laughs> that's great, uh, because it's so much good, and you said you could talk for two and a half days, but I, I just, you know, as your journey to figure out what the hell was wrong with you, it led you to oxalates. Were you looking at some other compounds as well? I mean, like lectins, for example, are very common in the, you know, problematic plant compounds, you know, world, I suppose, and I mean, I'm sure there are many high oxalate foods that are also high in lectins, but there are probably some that are low in oxalates that are also high in lectins. How, what is your thought on some of these other, you know, potential problems, you know, prob problematic food? I know lectin is probably the biggest problem, maybe causing yeah. leaky gut, but what are your thoughts on some of these other compounds that are out there? Well, I wasn't really smart enough to get into how plants are trying to kill us until after I found oxalates. But then as I was working on my, I'm working on a book, and chapter three is about how plants are toxic. So I spent two and a half years reading about plant toxins and the, the common denominator, whether it's soluble fiber or you name it, is gut damage. And I think lectins are number two after oxalates in terms of the power to get us. And as I've done, a, I gradually have these insights looking back at my own history of all the health problems I've had, which is a really long, long, long list of problems. And when I developed uh, what looked like infectious irritable bowel syndrome was the same part of my life when I was slow cooking beans during my vegan years. I was living with two other vegans and I would put mixed dried legumes in the crock pot with a little tiny scoop of peanut butter to make sure there was enough 
oxalate in there, <laughs> not knowing any of this, right? I was just ignorant uh, graduate of Cornell University, one of the finest nutrition schools in the country, knowing nothing. And slow cooking beans is the worst thing you could do in terms of lectins. You are preserving all those fabulous lectins and destroying your gut. And so lo and behold, during that time, I went out for a restaurant meal. It was the Friday night before Labor Day, I remember it well, and I got deathly sick from that meal. And lo and behold, infectious irritable bowel struck and stuck for 30 years. And I really blame lectins for the reason why, A, I got the infection to begin with from that bad food, and B, why it stayed as permanent, irritable bowel. And I still, even five years after the low oxalate diet, the only thing that's really left that I'm wondering will it ever fix is this sort of constipation tendency. Um, that, and of course I have the endometrial scars on the colon that are not helping much. And maybe those scars are full of oxalate and maybe there's a way over time that someday my body will prioritize the colon and it'll start being happy again. But I think lectins are a disaster. And most of us with oxalate poisoning need to be off gluten, which is the prime lectin that everyone's overdoing. Um, but the slow cooking and undercooking of lectin-containing food guarantees the lectins are active. The only way you can deactivate these proteins that lectins are is really kill them with heat. And, and so pressure cooking would be the answer. So for the Vegetarians who still want their beans or even the low oxalate dieters, you can have, um, on low oxalate diet, you can have black eyed peas and the pea family are generally low in oxalate versus the beans, which are high, especially um, black beans are high and great northern beans, which are used to make like the Boston baked beans. I mean, they're really high in oxalate, but the way we tend to cook now or this sort of raw sprout it and just cook things lightly thing, that's so so the soaking and sprouting doesn't doesn't do any good for the the lect from the lectin side of things it actually helps the lectins but you have to soak for like three and a half days and then you still need the heat and with oxalates the sprouting is that germination process remember i was saying that the seeds store the calcium oxalate because it needs the calcium and they need the calcium in order to make the amino acids during that germination phase. So you split the oxalate and the calcium apart during that soaking period and you, you make the oxalate active. Now you've got soluble oxalate instead of calcium oxalate. So you increased your effective bioavailability of the oxalate in the seed if you've germinated it or soaked it. So for nuts, they, uh, the trinyloxate group tested pecans and a couple of them and found, in general, soaking increased the oxalate, essentially. So I, did, I didn't know you were, you were formerly a vegan. Um, <laughs> did that, I mean, can you recommend that diet for anybody? Do you think it's, no. do you think anybody should do that diet? Not in the least. I do have um, a couple of followers who are vegan, and I'm glad I do. I want to see how well they can do. I, um, one person in particular, he started in December this year, so it's very new for him, but he had a lot of, uh, I think it is ankle pain, and that's helped him tremendously. So even on a deficient diet that's going to, you know, make you old before your time and 
and make you suffer ultimately, even that diet, you can reverse a lot of pain on the low oxalate diet. And what I'm finding with my clients is I'm shocked at how many vegans have actually stopped being vegans because of my education of them. I just got an email today. If we had time, I would read it to you. I just got it at 11 or 10 this morning from a vegan who's really been struggling with this idea. She's committed her life, her body, her her vocation, so to speak, to this idea of being the healthy vegan. And she did that for 20 something years. And then she went raw vegan and she is on death's door. She's very sick and she's, you know, I'm, we're working her through this process. So anybody who's really sick, I, I have a history of working with people with eating disorders and I understand compulsive eating and I understand the anxiety and the fear. And of course, if your brain is deficient because you haven't had butter in years and good fat, you're, you're a level of fear and you're like a deer in the headlights. If you're a sick vegan and you, you suddenly realize that the thing you've, you've gambled on your whole life on this idea, it is heartbreaking. It is so difficult for them. And I, I feel such pain for them. And I, I'm just impressed with any of them who can turn that around. Because many of these folks, it's, they're not a white person or a mom or a, or a Girl Scout leader in their identity. Who they are is vegetarian. Who they are is vegan. Like that's what makes them special. And so this is a big spiritual crisis for people. And I, I'm just impressed that anybody can walk away from that because it's it's a cult and it's very hard to save people from that. And I, I just, you know, again, I get a little emotional about it because I, I feel how difficult it is. And I'm, I just, my hat's off to anybody who can walk away from that and, and choose their own health over these ideas that were basically lies. They've been manipulated by forces and it's not their fault. Yeah, yeah well, Go ahead. it's interesting too, I think like, especially now like we saw kind of like an uptick in like the whole like vegan youtube community and that kind of i think made it difficult for vegans to step away because you know they get called out and ridiculed if they did by by the vocal minority i'm sure i'm the, the most vegans right. i'm sure aren't aren't doing that <laughs> but uh you know then then you see that kind of community start to fracture and, and those folks start to pull away and you know the the benefit of that then is then you create a trail for folks who are maybe not as well known or not well known at all to say, Oh, this, there is a, a pathway out of this. I'm not the only one. I'm not the one who screwed up and, you know, had to go back to killing animals, quote unquote. So it is interesting. Yeah. And one thing that bothers me is that, you know, the first person who talked me into vegetarianism was Frances Moore LePay with her book diet for a small planet. And I was, just out of high school and read that book. And thanks to that book, I was vegetarian for eight years. And then John Robbins came out with his book, Diet for a Small America, which was cribbing off that original book. And he convinced me how terrible, you know, the mucus was in the milk and how awful everything was and you had to go vegan. And so I did it. And again, in the postmortem of looking back at my health, that's when, when I went vegan within I don't know, three months of that, I started having such severe pain in my knees, I could hardly walk up and down the stairs. And I used a, a certain yoga pose to get myself out of that. And uh, who knows what else I changed, because what I'm realizing that as I look back, 
so many places where there were clues that I couldn't see because I was so pulled in by these men. The leaders in my generation were all white men, John McDougall and Neil Bernard and all these guys. And somehow some of them have survived it, although John McDougall's knees blown out and, and you know, I don't think any of them look that healthy. Um, but a lot of us who followed them were women. And I think vegetarian diets are particularly bad for women. And I, it's just not right. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, like you, I see a lot of people that uh, were former vegetarians and vegans that because of what I've done, you know, a lot of them criticize me, believe me, they criticize me every single day. Uh, but I do see a significant number of people that will say, you know, because of you, I, you know, decided to leave that way of, way of eating. And we've, we started a, you know, even a Facebook group, you know, restoration, health, vegan recovery group. And we've got something like 1500 members already of former vegans in here, all kind of, you know, helping each other out and supporting each other as they kind of pull away from that, you know, ideology, which is, can be hard to do. It's tough to sort of unthink that way. So anyway, anyway, Zach, well, I think we got enough. <laughs> um, Sally, it's wonderful. I hope I get to meet you in person at some, at one of these conferences. I'm sure our paths will cross, you know, as... Uh, we should plan on that. We really yeah. should plan on inserting some oxalate awareness. Sure, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's certainly as I bring this sort of website online with the animal-based nutrition stuff, it would be nice to have some oxalate information for people who want it. So hopefully I can reach out to you and get some of your support and information on that. So that would be wonderful. Where can we find you for people that want to find out more about you? I know you kind of touched on it a little bit, but just to, just to, because this is going to be a two-parter and people may forget by the, by, from the other one. So where can <laughs> they find you uh, and what do you got coming up? So if people want to hear you talk or, or, or tell us, you know, what your practice is right now. Okay. Uh, well, I have a website that is just my name. It's sallyknorton.com. And there's a lot of free information there. There's a upcoming events thing on the front page and you can go to the shop download section there's free articles i wrote an article in 2015 and uh, then i wrote a follow-on article that went with that talk for ancestral health which outlines my argument about you know why we should not be promoting these high oxalate foods as healthy foods um, i have not been really throwing my hat in the ring of speakers in a lot of these conferences because i'm trying to make myself finish my book <laughs> So back to hiding in the library, which I've been doing for the last four years, I've been in the stacks of the library and looking up the stuff. So I'm working on my book. Anybody out there in the publishing world want to see this thing get published, then, you know, let's get me, get me putting proposal. I have a finished proposal. So that's part of what I'm doing is uh, gearing up to get that in the hands of publishers. Um, I, I did do a talk that I think people should take a look at if they're serious about this topic for the Wesson A price foundation in November. I think that's still just a for sale thing for $18. I don't know if it eventually be available for free, but I am quite willing to give talks and do um, podcasts because we have to get the information out. Uh, what else? I forget, but you know, it's easy to find me. I'm not really a um, kind of social media person. I'm trying to get better about that. So I am playing around with Instagram and I find that more appealing than Facebook and maybe even Twitter. We'll see if I last on that, but uh, there's always my website. 
Cool. And we'll definitely link that to the show notes and uh, yeah, on the podcast side of things, uh, you know, there's a few other podcasts out there that kind of a similar platform as we do. And I, th- I think, you know, we all kind of listen to each other's stuff. So uh, it'd be cool to see you popping up on some other podcasts down the road. Yep. Cool. Thank you so much. It's really, I, I find that it just juices the thinking to be working together. And so I appreciate it. Yeah, no doubt. Look forward to it. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.